Interested in healthcare? Well, here's a programme you might not want to miss. Hosted by long-time healthcare reporter Dan Gorenstein, Tradeoffs takes a close look at the costly, complicated and counterintuitive world of the US healthcare system and the policies that govern it. Tradeoffs digs into the weeds with experts who understand the data driving the policy trends while telling compelling stories of those impacted by those policies. In the words of the Tradeoffs team, there are no easy solutions for a troubled healthcare system, just Tradeoffs. You can find Tradeoffs wherever you listen to your podcasts. Live from the BBC, The Naked Scientists. Well, welcome to this week's edition of The Naked Scientist with me, Dr Chris Smith, and with Dr Kat Arney. Hello! We're here, as usual, right across the east of England, talking about science, stripping down science to the bare essentials for you and tackling your science questions live on the programme. Under the microscope this week, the study of stem cells and how an egg, when it's been fertilised, turns into a new person... What's going on? How do those cells know what to become? And especially, how does the nervous system put itself together? How does it wire itself up? And also, what happens when things go wrong? How do stem cells pick into, uh, put into this picture? And how can we perhaps use them in the future to put things right? We're held, here to help us with that this evening. From Guy's, King's and Tommy's Medical School in London, Dr Adrian Peeney. Good evening, Adrian. Hi there. And from Imperial College down in London, also Hussein Mehmet. Good evening, Hussein. Hi, Chris. And later on in the programme, a pump that could help you if you're a third world farmer and enough of your day is already taking up uh, carting water around, a new pump that uses something, heat, that you might currently throw away. Tom Smith's from the University of Cambridge and he's going to talk about his brand new invention later on in the show. Good evening, Tom. Hello there, Chris. But that's not all we have in store for you this evening. Here's Dr Katz with a rundown of what else we've got in store for you. It's going to be a great show this evening. Yeah, coming up, we're going to hear something that I'm sure everyone in this room dreams of. We're going to hear about the never-ending beer glass that's been invented by scientists in Germany. And I'll be bringing you news of not the Nobel Prizes, but the Ig Nobel Prizes. These are the, uh, the prizes for the silliest science done in the world. Uh, so you hear about those later. And also get phoning in for our quiz, Science Fact or Science Fiction. Very simple to play. And the prize this week is an electronics kit. Electronics? Some kind of scale thing. Electronics kit uh, donated by Science Sleuth. And also we've got some books. We've got Simon Singh's Big Bang book. Chris? And another really exciting thing, of course, we are encouraging you to indulge in a bit of live, naked science all around the region this evening. Science in your kitchen. Because Derek and Dave, two of our naked scientists, have headed off this week to Alexander and his mate Sam's kitchen. And they are going to be doing some really funky experiments with oil and Pyrex glass. And what we want you to do is to have a go and see if you can compete with them to get the right answer. It's very simple. Go away now and collect a very large washing-up bowl or a bowl and a Pyrex, it has to be Pyrex, dish of some kind or a bowl or one of those beakers. It's all you need and some cooking oil, OK? We're coming to the, the Naked Science Kitchen Science Laboratory in a few minutes' time and if you get the right answer ahead of them in their laboratory, you could win yourself a fantastic prize. As Kat says, we have an electronics project lab from Science Sleuth to give away this evening and I also have a copy of Simon Singh's book, Big Bang. Stripping down science. Okay, let's do it. The Naked Scientists.
Now, thirsty researchers at the University of Munich have come up with a fabulous invention recently. Andreas Butz and his colleagues have come up with a beer mat that automatically signals to the bartender when your glass is getting empty and that you need a refill. This is a fantastic piece of kit. What it does is to actually work out how full the glass is by weighing it. It's got a pressure sensor built into the beer mat. And it then uses a radio frequency to alert the bar staff uh, that you need to have your glass topped up again. But they don't just stop there. They say this could also be used for interactive drinking and other pub-related pursuits. <laughs> uh, the, the, way, the way in which this might work uh, is that you could, for instance, have a karaoke in your pub. And if someone's particularly good, then everyone can raise their glass to the, say, good, uh, good on you, good act and that of course registers a vote with the bar and the best the best uh, karaoke act of the night of course then walks away with a prize the other thing you can do is because it has a motion sensor built in you can work out whether or not uh, your uh, how um, panicky your your drinker is because if you flip the bar mat over you can use that to signify uh, impatience to the barkeeper and then they'll come and serve you much more quickly um, so judging by my, my drinking experiences in my local watering hole actually that could be quite handy couldn't it? What do you think? <laughs> I think that would be absolutely brilliant. I want to know if it can uh, tell if you're becoming an alcoholic Anyway, I have some news about the Ig Nobel Prizes. Now, these are the alternative Nobel Prizes awarded every year by a foundation in America. So basically, the, uh, the slightly sillier side of science. It's very easy to get wrapped up in how serious science is. So I think this is brilliant. Some of the prizes awarded this year, 2005 Ig Nobels, the prize for physics has gone to John Mainstone at the University of Queensland, who's been conducting the same experiment since 1927 which is watching a glob of congealed black tar slowly dripping through a funnel at the rate of one drop every nine years. It's exciting uh, science, any, isn't anyone, it? Anyone fancy that? <laughs> or there's the Watching Paint Dry project. Um, the Medicine Prize this year has gone to Greg Miller of Missouri for inventing nuticles. Any ideas what these are? Uh, small newts. And nuticles are replacement testicles for dogs who've been spayed. How the, how uh, the hell do you do that? I, I don't know. But, well, you know, perhaps they felt that the dogs were lacking in, in that department and that apparently they're available in three different sizes. Uh, the prize this year for peace has gone to Claire Rind of Newcastle University who electrically monitored the activity of the brain cells of locusts while the locust was watching Star Wars. These are genuine, all genuine research that's been done and published. So, <laughs> uh, the prize for chemistry this year has gone to Edward Cussler of the University of Minnesota, who's conducted an experiment to find out, do people swim faster in syrup or water? And <laughs> finally... <laughs> sticky results, isn't it? Just, yeah, these are just great. Um, the nutrition prize went to Dr Yoshihiro Nakamatsu of Tokyo, who has photographed and analysed every meal he's eaten for the past 34 years. And finally, I love this one, the Nobel Prize for Fluid Dynamics has gone to Victor Benno Meyer-Rochau of Bremen, who has used basic principles of physics to calculate the pressure that builds up inside a penguin when it has a poo. <laughs> I tell you what, last year, you know, the, the, the Ig Nobel Prize for Medicine last year went to a couple of Americans who had analysed the output from local radio stations around America and their findings were that suicide rates were highest on American radio stations that played the most country music. <laughs> I can really see why that would happen. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Dr Chris and Dr Kat here with you until 7 o'clock, joined this evening by Dr Adrian Peeney and Dr Hussein Mehmet who are going to be talking to us in a minute about how the brain and the body 
body essentially puts itself together when you're an embryo and how it can actually go wrong and what we can do about it in terms of using stem cells. And Tom Smith's going to be coming on in a second to talk about a new kind of pump that could revolutionise farmers' lives in the third world. But right now it's time to head over to our science laboratory, which we've set up in someone's kitchen, to join Derek and Dave and find out about a vanishing act. Now remember, we want you to join in at home and do this experiment with us. And the first person through on the telephone with the right answer win themselves a fantastic prize. We've got an electronic project lab to give away. You can wire up all these funky circuits and make amazing things like homemade radios, CBs, that kind of thing. Just give us a call if you can do this experiment at home and get the right answer. Right, here are Derek and Dave. What are you up to? Yes, Chris, welcome to Comberton near Cambridge, where we will be doing some crazy mystical science, which, of course, we will be demystifying later in the show. And please remember that tonight we want you to try this at home too. It'll be very easy, so just keep listening. Anyway, with me, of course, is Dave, who is my Naked Science colleague, the man with the methods. Uh, Dave, what are we doing today? Well, this evening, Derek, we're going to be doing a really neat trick with some kitchenware and some oil. Excellent, fantastic. And also, some wonderful help here. Uh, one chap who lives in the kitchen and a friend of his. Uh, firstly, what's your name, sir? Hi, I'm Alexander and I'm 12. Excellent. And yourself, what's your name and age? Hi, I'm Sam and I'm 12 as well. OK, and Alexander, then, what do you like about science? I like geology, rocks. OK, good stuff. And yourself, Sam? I like space and stars and planets and stuff. OK, well, we won't be doing any planets in the kitchen today, but we will be doing some very, very cool stuff. So, anyway, you at home, you can do this experiment yourself, and it will be very easy, and I assure you it will stun you. So, please go ahead and get these things. What you will need is some Pyrex. Now, Pyrex is basically oven-proof glass, and you can normally find Pyrex simply by looking on the base of glass that you think is oven-proof, and if it says Pyrex, then it is. Now, what you need is a Pyrex dish, you know, a jug or a bowl or something, not too big, and then another bowl which is larger, okay, that you could fit the Pyrex thing inside. Now, if this larger bowl is actually made of Pyrex, all the better, but the important thing is that you've got some kind of fairly small Pyrex dish or jug or whatever, and then a larger bowl. And in addition to that, you'll also need some oil, not very much, just like a small bottle of oil, let's say 250 mils or something, isn't it, like that. And this can be sunflower oil or vegetable oil. And don't worry, you will be getting your oil back. We're not going to be asking you to waste it or pour it away or anything like that. So your oil will all be reclaimed at the end of the day. OK, then, so that's what you need, and we want you to listen to Dave's instructions. Dave, what are we going to be doing with all this? Well, this experiment is incredibly simple. All you have to do is take the sunflower oil. So, Alexander, could you take a load of sunflower oil and pour it into the big dish? Yeah, okay. pour it all in. OK, so remember, you don't really need a huge amount at home, but uh, we are going to use quite a lot. How are you doing there, Alex? Pretty much all gone. There we are. Okay, Alex, Thank you very much. That's great. Okay, and what next, Dave? Now, all you've got to do is take the small Pyrex dish and put it in the big one and see what happens. Okay, so guys, um, Alexander, firstly, what do you think is going to happen when we put that Pyrex dish in the oil? Is it going to float? We shall find out. What about you, Sam? What do you think might happen? Well, the oil will rise and maybe come over the top and into the smaller bowl. OK, so we're not going to do this now, guys. OK, as we told you, this is very, very easy, but we are going to wait until the end of the show to find out what happens. But that's it. You've got to get a big bowl. If it's made of Pyrex, that's great, but it's just a big bowl. 
put your oil in it and then immerse your Pyrex dish inside that oil and see what happens. And we want you to tell us. We want you to phone in the Naked Scientists and tell us what happens. The number is 08459 25 and there will be a prize for the first correct answer. You can also email, of course. The email address is chris at thenakedscientist.com and uh, we'll be coming back later on in the show, half an hour, 40 minutes, something like that, back to Combaton near Cambridge to find out what happens and, of course, an explanation from Dave. So it's back to you in the studio Chris well that was brilliant um, so everyone I hope you're all at home getting on with that this is the Naked Scientist here with Dr Chris Dr Cat until 7 o'clock so we just heard from Brian so I was talking about the Nobel Prize winners for medicine who've, uh, who've invented the nuticles as replacement testicles for dogs and Brian in Somersham has just called in and said could you use pickled onions instead or would that make the dog's eyes water too much I think which, Brian should volunteer for which that which is a concept I wonder if we can come up with some prize for Brian <laughs> maybe a jar of pickled onions so anyway we've got Alex on the line from Houghton Regis good evening Alex hi hello and how are you fine how are you oh, very well thank you for asking what's your question um, when petrol is spilled on the ground and it's mixed with water how comes it's so colourful Oh, you get that wonderful rainbow effect, don't you? Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good observation. And uh, have you actually tried doing this yourself, pouring some oil and, and testing other oils, or is it just petrol you've tried? Well, I've just seen petrol. You haven't put any matches near it, have you? No. No, good, good, good man. Um, no, the reason for this is that oil, when it goes on water, you know what happens to oil on water? Yeah, the oil floats on top of the water. Spot on, the oil floats. But when it floats, it doesn't just form globules, uh, like soap bubbles. It spreads out as thinly as it possibly can. And actually, what you get down to is a layer of oil which is so thin, it's actually as thin as the wavelength of the light which is making the light that you, that's enabling you to see it. So it's that thin. It's down to just a few atoms or a couple of atoms thickness in some places. It's very, very thin. But in other places, it's a little bit thicker. So when the light goes down down into the oil and then tries to get into the water, some of the light bounces back off of the layers of oil before it even gets into the water. So it's a bit, the oil forms a bit like a mirror floating on top of the water. And so some of the light you see has travelled a longer distance than some of the other light you see. And so that's why you get that rainbow effect, because it's splitting the light into different wavelengths because of how, how thick the oil layer is. So that's why you get pretty patterns. Okay. That's pretty funky, that. isn't it? <laughs> Alex, how do you fancy winning yourself an electronics project lab? Okay. Yeah? Please. Uh, sound, sound a bit keener. Go, yeah! Yeah! Come on, <laughs> it's a good prize! Okay, here we go. You've played this, I'm sure, or you've heard us do this. The eyeballs of a giant coral reef fish called the Napoleon Wrasse are a delicacy in Hong Kong. What do you think of that? Do you think that's true or do you think that's false? Um, True. No, uh, it's not its eyeballs of the Napoleon Rass that are a delicacy, it's their rubbery lips. <laughs> the, the rubbery lips of the Napoleon Rass are a great delicacy in Hong Kong, worth apparently $250 for a plateful. Mm. Okay. The cry of a howler monkey is so loud that it can be heard 25 miles away. Do you think that's true, or is that science fiction? Um, true. No, in fact, that's my mother that can be heard 25 miles away. Uh, well, she's, no. <laughs> she's obviously lost her voice a bit then, Kat. I think she might be listening. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, howler monkeys, you can hear them three miles across the treetops. OK, Alex, you've yet to score, so you're doing very well in that respect. Uh, if someone's uvula is vibrating, it means they're burping or belching. Science fact or science fiction? Um, fact. 
No, your uvula is that flap of skin that dangles down the back of your throat. And uh, when you're asleep, all your head muscles relax, your palate and uvula vibrate, and that's snoring. So if your uvula's vibrating, you're snoring like a pig. Great question, though, Alex. So I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to dig around and try and find you a book or something, because I loved the question. It was fantastic. Okay, thank you. You're welcome, and thanks for phoning up. Okay, thank you. See ya. I have got an email here from Laura Davison, who's actually over in Maryland, which is on the east coast of the USA, and she says, Chris, I'm wondering if you could shed some light, spread some light, she says, but I don't think she quite means that, shed some light on why my surgical scars itch more with exercise. The the two may not be related, but the more I exercise, the more my scars itch. I had surgery in February of this year. Um, I'm just thinking about this one. Well... When you, do, when you obviously have surgery, the surgeon has to cut through the skin, and in the course of cutting through the skin, they almost certainly will cut some nerves. And scientists have now come round to the idea that itching is because of a specific class of nerve fibre. There's a very small, very tiny type of nerve fibre in the skin that seems to convey itchiness. And what's likely to be the case with this, in the reason that scars and cuts and scabs and things itch so much, is perhaps if you injure those tiny, fine-calibre nerve fibres, when they actually come to try and regrow, it's possible that they could fire off a little bit inappropriately sometimes and they fool the brain into thinking that there's an itch there when actually there isn't. So that's one possibility. Another possibility is that when the tissue is putting itself back together when you've had a scar, then you get lots of funny tension and pulling within the skin and it's possible that that could be triggering off these itch-sensitive uh, itch nerve fibres as well and that's why you think you've got an itch when in reality you haven't. Adrian, would you go along with that? Yeah, pretty much, Chris. I think that's about right. Are you an itch specialist? or Not at all. <laughs> <laughs> well, don't listen to what he says, then. <laughs> so there you go, Linda. Thanks very much for that one. Kat? Um, well, I've got a news story here, which is uh, something that everyone can get along with, and this is robotic fish. So uh, here's a quick joke for you, robotic fish joke. What shoots through the water at 80 miles an hour? A motor pike. <laughs> ah, got you. <laughs> ah, but what goes around the bottom of a riverbed at going vroom, vroom, vroom at 80 miles an hour uh, with something else in tow? What? A motor pike and side carp. Oh. <laughs> oh, right, that was the last you've heard of the Naked Scientists in <laughs> East of England. If you want to give us a call and you can beat my rubbish joke, 08459 25000 or email me chris at nakedscientist.com. As you all have gathered, we'll take any trivial science questions and some serious ones too, waiting in the wings to talk to us. Dr Adrian Peeney, who's an expert on how the, how the body develops and the brain develops from a tiny single ball of cells into what we call a human and other animals as well. And Hussein Mehmet, who's an expert on how stem cells could be used to put right things when they go wrong in the brain and the nervous system. If you'd like to ask them a question, 08459 25000 or email chris at nakedscientist.com. And Tom Smith's here, and he's going to be talking about a heat-powered pump for the third world. So do I get to do my fish story now, then? Go on, then. You just jump in there. Um, yes, if anyone can get down to London, to the London Aquarium, which is down on the South Bank, you can see robotic fish, you know, your motor pikes and everything. So uh, it's Professor Hu, uh, Hu Sheng Hu, at the Department of C Computer Science at the University of Essex, have been developing these uh, robotic fish for three years, and they've been uh, trying to develop the perfect fish. So it's the speed of a tuna, the acceleration of a pike, and the navigating skill of the eel, and probably the smell of decomposing fish, I should imagine. Um, so these robotic fish, they're sensor-controlled and can navigate themselves all around the tank, so they know where they're going, they don't run into anything. 
and you can go down and spot these at the London Aquarium as of this week and <laughs> just reading this Professor Hu apparently is an expert in the field of robotics and was the mastermind behind the Essex Robotic Football Team which won the third prize in the Robo Cup Simulation League in 1999 so Essex famous for robots I so we, we interviewed someone a few years ago and he's a guy who works at Leeds University and his name's Jens Krauser and he works on how fish form shoals and he was telling me that some sh- fish shoals are sort of two kilometres in size they're absolutely huge but to work out how fish so- shoals actually work i.e. why does one fish decide to be the leader and all the others follow it he's made a, essentially a robotic fish that he puts in a, in a tank and he can control this from outside the tank and he puts it in a tank with some sticklebacks these are little fish that, that are in Britain's rivers and when you drive this fish around the tank, all the other sticklebacks, because this fish seems to know where it's going, all the other ones follow it, like follow my leader. It's absolutely fantastic. He's got these videos on his website which show this happening. Absolutely fantastic. If you have a question for us here at The Naked Scientist, 08459 252000. Remember, Derek and Dave are poised in Alexander and Sam's kitchen doing things with oil and putting Pyrex dishes in the oil. If you want to have a go at doing that and finding the amazing result that you get, and you can beat us to the result... Oh, it call now, 08459 252000. First person through with the correct observation could be in the hat to win an electronic project lab from Sci- Science Sleuth. The Naked Scientists, supported by the Wellcome Trust. Dr Chris and Dr Cat here with you as the Naked Scientists through until 7 on BBC Local Radio right across the eastern counties. If you'd like to give us a call on anything scientific, 08459252000. I have an email here uh, from DMB, who's at the MRC Dunn Laboratory in Cambridge, and uh, unfortunately doesn't give any more uh, name. But it says, hello, I've always wanted to try eating an Elvis burger. That's a burger made of real Elvis tissue, as I presume. Uh, will stem cells make this at all possible? Also, will imbibing human flesh give me access to the powers of the person whom I'm eating. I presume if they want to actually eat an Elvis burger. You know that uh, at the time of his demise, Elvis was consuming something in the region of 23 to 25,000 calories per day. Uh, to put that in perspective, that's enough to power an African elephant. Uh, so if you really want to do that and, that, and you want to gain access to the Elvis powers, then if that's what that's going to make you do, then um, maybe you shouldn't be working at the MRC Dunn. Although I'm pleased to see the MRC Dunn's actually a nutritional laboratory, isn't it? So that's actually kind of figures, doesn't it? Uh, so you should probably know that, whoever you are, DMB at MRC Done. Anyway, you're listening to The Naked Scientist, Dr Chris and Dr Katz, and this evening we're talking, amongst other things, about stem cells and how the brain and the nervous system puts itself together. And here to help us do that, from Guys, Kings and Tommy's Medical School down in London, is Dr Adrian Peeney. Good evening, Adrian. Hi, Chris. It seems an amazing thing that one sperm meets one egg and you have something which is a single cell with the right number of chromosomes in it, hopefully, and that can give rise to a whole person with more than a trillion cells in it. But how do all those cells know exactly what to do and what to become? How does that work? Well, as the question suggests, it's incredibly complicated and it's really not all that well understood at all. Essentially what happens is that the first cell that gets fertilised by a sperm divides in two and then the daughter cells themselves divide. So the first thing that happens is that you generate a whole load of cells. And as the cell division process goes on and goes forward, you then begin to get subspecialization into different regions that are going to become the different areas of the body. So, for example, cells that are going to form the skin and the nervous system, cells that are going to form your muscles, and cells that are going to form your blood and guts and so on. So all these um, differentiation events, as they're called, are beginning to occur as the embryo is beginning to get bigger. And in the nervous system especially, what then happens is that you get a sort of layer of flat 
cells, a sort of flat layer of cells, if you like. And within that thing, you get changes really which, first of all, occur at a kind of genetic level, so that you can't really see very much that's going on. And then different genetic programs seem to kick in sequentially in different groups within the nervous system to give rise to subspecializations that are going to become different parts of the brain and the spinal cord and the nerves that run out to your skin and so on and so forth. It seems amazing to think that something, the brain, which has a million, million nerve cells in it, can actually work out exactly where to connect all those different nerve cells together. But how does a nerve cell, say, at the top of my brain that's going to control my finger, know where to connect to and to make that unerringly so that my finger does move and not other bits of my body instead when I'm born? Well, that's right. It is a very, very complicated process. And essentially, nerve cells can communicate with one another. They can read signals. So there are two really two sorts of signals that nerve cells can read. One's the ones that come floating in, that diffuse in, as we say, that are coming from other places. So they'll be like a dog sniffing a scent, that kind of arrangement. And the other way in which a nerve cell can talk to another cell is simply by touching it. And there's an exchange of chemical signals. So you're involving proteins, usually, and other molecules as well. But those are the signalling things that do the talking between the cells. So, for example, if a nerve cell is sitting up in the, in the brain somewhere and it's got to navigate some quite long distance, one of the sets of cues it can read are ones that diffuse in from the area to which that nerve cell is going to be directed. So the uh, target zone, as it's called, will secrete an attractant, a bit like, you know, as I mentioned, a, a scent, scent for a dog, that kind of thing, so that the nerve cell can then extend a very thin and fine process, which is called an axon, which is actually the nerve fibre, which is going to go from where the cell is sitting in the brain, let's say, out down through your spinal cord, a long way, perhaps a metre or so. But the thing to remember, of course, is that embryos are very, very small, and so that the difference, you know, the distances that you're growing over then are rather small and manageable, in a sense. It, well, I think people tend to get the idea, goodness me, a nerve cell knows where to go from the brain right down to the sort of you know, depths of the spinal cord in a sort of six-foot man, this kind of thing. It's a big distance. But, of course, even six-feet people were once very small little embryos. So... Um, I, I think I remember hearing once that your brain is still making all these connections once you're born and as you're a, a baby developing. So what's the key time in life for that? And can you improve a baby's intelligence by sort of stimulating it in the right ways at certain times? Well, certainly. I mean, a lot of the construction of the nervous system is said to be what's called activity-dependent, which is just a piece of jargon that means that as, for example, your visual system is developing, you know, your eyes and things are beginning to work, it's rather useful if actually you can see, you know, if, if signals can come in and work the system, because in the old uh, doctrine, cells that wire together, fire together, or fire together, wire together, I should say, <laughs> the other way around. And, uh, and what that means is that you get functional connections being made between cells, which are uh, you know, going to be important for, for later on. One of the important things, though, about the way in which the nervous system develops is that you actually make an awful lot more nerve cells than you're actually ever going to need. And what happens is that there's a controlled process that goes on whereby you overproduce nerve cells and that they undergo a kind of almost Darwinian competition amongst themselves so that these connections, the right connections, get established. And then what happens then is that the cells which are either not properly connected or for other reasons are not understood, a lot of cells die. So, for example, the motor nerves that work your arms and so on and so forth and legs, those nerves sitting in the spinal cord, you make roughly double the number that you're actually ever going to need and the rest just die. Because I've heard that uh, that's the Darwinian theory of drinking, because doesn't drinking kill off your brain cells, and therefore you hope that you're <laughs> keeping the strongest ones still hanging on in there. <laughs> that's right, the trouble is it kills off all sorts of other cells as well. <laughs> oh, there's always a downside, isn't there? And that's what attracted me to stem cell research. <laughs>
<laughs> no, so Hussein, tell us a little bit about how stem cells fit into the whole picture because the, the nervous system originates, as Adrian said, from a whole class of cells that are essentially stem cells. They, they divide and give rise to all the classes of cells in the body. Um, is it possible to extract these things and then use them to put things right in the future? Yes, well, that's what we're working on, we, and we hope to, to convince uh, the government that we can actually do that, I and mean, that's, that's exactly what we, we're hoping to do. One of the things that Adrian said, which I think is really interesting, is that as the brain develops, uh, the cells actually die naturally as well, and, and one, of the, one of the questions that Kat asked is, what, what about babies? And I think the thing that attracted us to stem cell research is actually that babies that are born very, very early actually haven't formed all their brain cells properly. And if you were look, to look at a baby that was born, for example, three or four months early under a special machine called an MRI scanner, which is like a, a very sophisticated, non-damaging X-ray machine, if you were actually look, to look at the brain, it would actually look like an onion, layers of an onion in two halves. If you then imagine the picture you've seen of a brain of a normal human being with all its convoluted bends and twists and folds, that development normally has to take place in a premature baby outside of mum's tummy. And so that's why uh, many, many premature babies have problems with their brains developing. Now, brains do, of course, contain some stem cells. When I was a student, I'm sure Adrian remembers these days as well as I do, <laughs> <laughs> we were told that the brain only had very, very limited powers of repair, and of course that's true. So we, were, we, we always thought that once brain cells had finished developing through the elegant process that Adrian described, that was it. So in other words, if a patient was to damage their brain through a disease or through an accident or something like that, the brain had no power to regenerate itself. We now know that that's not true. There are two areas of the brain that actually do have small numbers of stem cells in them. I'm not going to talk about the human. I think the best example is to actually discuss how this was discovered in the songbird so animals that have to relearn songs for example have a special area of their brain where they remember the songs that they hear and these cells these specialized brain cells these neurons actually develop from a very small and specialized population of stem cells i think the problem is that in most adults we have enough stem cells to allow us to learn a new smell or two or perhaps to remember a new michael jackson song or something like that shows my age doesn't it <laughs> but it but not enough cells to repair a large lesion large area of damage that might happen for example in a stroke patient and that's where stem cells come in so coming back to the songbird for a second so in the adult when it wants to learn a new song it pumps some stem cells into that area of the brain in terms of which, which is whose job it is to encode new songs and those cells then take on that role those cells are already there but when the actual song is heard they're then actually programmed to begin to differentiate into the memory forming cells in a specialized region of the brain called the dentate gyrus for the aficionados in the audience you're listening to The Naked Scientist, Dr Chris and Dr Kat with you until uh, 7 o'clock on BBC Local Radio right across the east of England. We're talking the science of stem cells, the science of neural development and we're doing that with Dr Adrian Peeney from Guy's Kings and Tommy's Medical School in London and Dr Hussein Mehmet from Imperial College in London. If you'd like to give them a call and ask about stem cells, damage to the brain, the development of the brain and how we can actually go about putting things right in the brain using stem cell technology, 08459 25 2000 is the phone number or you can send me an email Chris at nakedscientist.com and we will of course take general science questions as well and uh, you can, so you can call in with anything you'd like to remember Dave and Derek are sitting in that kitchen they want to know what is the observation when you get your Pyrex dish and you drop it into a bowl a bigger bowl and you put some, some just olive oil or some kitchen vegetable oil around that Pyrex dish just pour it in and see what happens give us a ring and you could win yourself an electronic project lab 
Fancy listening to the naked scientists in your bed, <laughs> on your way to work, or even at work?、Mm -hmm. Why not subscribe to our podcast? For more information, visit nakedscientists.com forward slash podcast. Dr. Chris and Dr. Cat here with you through until seven. Molly is on the line. Hello, Molly. Hello. How are you? I'm okay. What's your question?、Um, how do we get brain damage? Right, I guess that's、uh, you guys' department. Hussein, how do we get brain damage? Well, there are lots of ways, Molly, that、uh, the brain can be damaged.、Um, sometimes the brain is born incorrectly, so it might have some of the special genes that make up the brain. Uh, the brain cells that are missing, and so that the brain is damaged from the outset.、Uh, babies, unfortunately, sometimes are born with brain damage.、Uh, they can be born with brain damage, for example, if their mummy has、uh, difficulties during labour, and a very, very specialised organ, you know, a tissue like the brain, unfortunately, doesn't have enough oxygen, and that's one of the ways. And of course, as I said earlier, if babies are born very, very prematurely before their brains are properly formed. That can also lead to brain damage, and there are lots of grown-up diseases like Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease. These are diseases that actually will damage and kill off the brain cells. And as I said, largely speaking, many of these cells can't be repaired. But perhaps one of the most common forms, unfortunately, of brain damage. And of course, let's not forget that the brain includes your spinal cord, which also has brain cells in it. Are accidents, and unfortunately, many people who have very serious accidents and falls will damage part of their back or their、uh, their spine or their brain. Particularly motorbike accidents, people's not wearing crash helmets, and and there are many causes for brain damage, unfortunately, and it's one of the areas that we really can't cure properly at the moment. Sobering news for you, Molly. But how do you fancy having a quick go at the quiz? Okay. All right. Yeah. Caterpillars have more muscles than humans. Is that fact or fiction? Do you think that's true or false? True. You're right. Yes, humans only have about seven hundred and sixty-two muscles, and some caterpillars have up to four thousand. Nice work, Molly. You're in the lead so far. Woo!、Yeah. Next question. A herpetologist. A herpetologist studies liver diseases. This is quite hard. This one, but we have to give you a few hard ones because it sounds like you're going to do quite well. A herpetologist studies liver diseases. Fact or fiction?、Um, fiction. You're quite right. Yes, a herpetologist is fascinated by reptiles,、uh, whereas hepatology is the study of livers. What a genius! You're doing very well. Two out of three so far. Here we go. A mosquito could drain the blood from a human adult with ten million bites. Is that science fact or science fiction?、Um. What are you going to go for? Fact or fiction? Fiction. Wow, you're on four, Molly.、Um, it would actually take about a tenth of that, just over a million bites, to drain all your blood. But hopefully, you'd notice before it came to that. Well done, Molly. You're in the lead so far. All right.、Yeah. Thanks for taking part. Your brain's working, Molly. Well done. <laughs> Dr. Chris and Dr. Cat here with you through till seven as the Naked Scientists. If you'd like to have a go at our quiz, science fact or science fiction, or you would like to ask a question of Dr. Adrian Peeny, Dr. Hussein Mehmet, all about the question of stem cells, brain injury, and how to put the brain right, oh eight four five nine twenty five two thousand is the phone number, or email me chris at nakedscientist dot com. Sorting out the sparks from the quarks, the Naked Scientists. You're listening to the Naked Scientist podcast, which is freely available through our website, nakedscientist.com. 
Incidentally, NakedScientists.com also includes a discussion forum, which you can find at NakedScientists.com forward slash forum, and that's an ideal place to meet other like-minded individuals, swap ideas and questions and answers about science, and also provide us with some feedback about what you think of what we're doing here. Another way to get in touch with me is to write in chris at nakedscientist.com is my email address, or you can write to me the old-fashioned way via BBC Radio Cambridgeshire, Cambridge in England. We'd love to hear from you, but above all, we'd like to introduce a new feature this week, which includes your contributions. We want your science podcasts to include in our science show. So if you're going somewhere interesting, perhaps to the top of a volcano, or even to the bottom of the ocean, or you're doing a funky science experiment, get your microphone out and record something. Send your podcasts, which should be no more than one or two minutes long and preferably funny, to me, chris at nakedscientist.com, and the best podcasts will get to be included not just in our podcast next week, but in our science radio programme, which is broadcast live on the BBC. So get recording now, drop us a line, and try and win yourself a prize. Dr Chris and Dr Cat, as the Naked Scientist, taking your science questions live this evening, 08459 25 2000, if you'd like to get a question to air. It's very busy on the telephones. Please try sooner rather than later. We're talking stem cells, we're talking brain repair, and now we're also going to talk about a new kind of pump that could make life a lot easier for farmers and other people in the third world. Joining us from Cambridge University, the inventor, the winner of the Sunday Times was it the one-minute pitch one competition? Minute pitch, and they great. gave you £100,000 to start a business to try and get this going. So that's how serious this is. Tom, what's it all about? So um, what I've invented is a pump without moving parts, um, which uses heat rather than electricity as a power source. Um, so most pumps which exist use electricity, and they have moving pieces, pistons, um, uh, or, or vanes which move to, to move the water along. Um, now, my pump actually expands and contracts fluids uh, by heating them and cooling them um, to provide a movement of fluid which can be used to pump water. Now, what distinguishes it from other pumps without moving parts, and there's a whole history of these things, um, is that it can use heat from sources at very low temperatures. Um, for example, waste heat or heat from the sun um, collected with solar hot water panels. Um, so it could be useful for pumping water for irrigating fields, particularly in third world countries. Um, but also it has many applications here at home, for example, pumping hot water around your domestic central heating system. So talk us through a little bit more precisely exactly how this works and why it's better than what people have got at the moment. So... Um, that depends slightly on the application we're looking at, but let's, let's talk a little bit about irrigation in developing countries. Um, farmers in developing countries earning less than a dollar a day typically tend to farm areas of about, about, uh, one, about half a hectare in size, so that's a really a small field. Um, and they, the only way that they can get water is to lift it out of the ground by hand or to pump it out with treadle pumps. And in many cases, they spend up to four hours a day providing themselves with water. Now, for some time, we've had uh, so-called photovoltaic cells. These are so solar electricity uh, panels, um, which can be used to produce electricity to drive electric pumps. But they're very expensive on the one hand, and they tend to, they tend to fail. And if something fails in the middle of nowhere, there's often nobody to repair it. So what we really need is a system which is very, very simple. Um, and heat is much easier to work with than electricity. So that, that's where Okay, it so in. some heat comes out of, say, an exhaust pipe from a boiler. What does it do to your pump? How does it work? Let's get to the nitty-gritty. 
sell it to us as if you're on your Sunday time Sunday Times one minute pitch or whatever. Okay, the nitty gritty. So imagine two columns of liquid, uh, two cylinders of liquid side by side, and imagine that they're joined at the top and they're joined at the bottom. Now, so this looks a little bit like a rectangle if we look at it. And if we heat the left-hand column at the top end and cool it at the bottom end, then what happens is, as we heat it, the liquid starts to boil. And as it boils, the pressure rises and steam is produced and it pushes liquid out of the right-hand column on the right-hand side of the rectangle. Now, we'll come on to what happens down in the right-hand corner in a minute. Um, but as liquid leaves the system, we get a level difference between the liquid in the two columns. Gravity then causes this level difference to even out, and so we get hot vapours moving down into the cold end that I mentioned a second ago. Now when hot vapours see cold surfaces, they condense, and so the pressure lowers, and this sucks the liquid back up in the right-hand column. Oh, so you get an oscillation, it goes up and down. That's right, so the two columns of liquid are moving up and down, heat is being added, heat is being rejected. Um, now down in the right-hand corner of this rectangle that we talked about, we have two so-called non-return valves. These are one-way valves which allow water to, to move in one direction and move out in the other direction. And so what happens is as the liquid column moves up and down, it's sucking water from below, from a borehole or something, and delivering it to a field above. So this is going to save these guys hours and hours of laborious backbreaking work and, and use energy that they would otherwise view as a waste product, the exhaust of, a, of an engine or a boiler. For example, yes. And um, I, I believe the figure, I've heard the figure that we use, something like 10% of the electricity we use in our homes in the winter is for pumping water around heating systems because these systems are running for several hours a day. If we could use some of the heat which is there anyway... Um, to, 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 to do this job, then essentially the entire system becomes significantly more efficient. So it has applications not just in the third world, but to make all of us lead a cleaner, greener life then? Absolutely. And so the idea um, behind my company is that I'll, I'll try to commercialise this pump for several of these green-type applications here at home and then use the funds from that to, to help with some of the charitable applications in developing countries. Thank you very much. Tom Smith, uh, and a fantastic invention, born at Cambridge University, here, home territory in the eastern region. Thank you, Chris. Thank you for coming in and talking to us about it. Uh, so far, we have heard from various people, including Norman, is, who's in Hunstanton. He's had a go at our experiment that Derek and Dave told you about earlier. He says he's made a right mess in the kitchen. He found that all the air was pushed out of the dish, and it's become stuck. He has managed to get it out no, now, though, thank God, uh, but he thinks he did go wrong somewhere, because presumably that making a right mess wasn't the correct observation. Yeah, 100% right, Norman. That was the wrong answer. Laying the facts bare... The Naked Scientists. Martin is on the line. Hello, Martin. Oh, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Good evening. How are you? Oh, very well, sir. And uh, far away, what can we do for you? Right, I'm hoping you can settle a dispute between myself and a friend um, about the largest organ in the human body. Now, right. My friend says it's the liver. Right. I'm sure I read somewhere that the skin is classed as an organ and therefore that's bigger. Is there money riding on this? Um, oh, there's a lot riding on it, a pint. Is there a definitely a pint? Well, I have to say that the biggest organ is the skin. The skin is right. an organ um, yeah. because it fulfils an independent function and, uh, and yeah, it's specialised enough to be an organ. So you've won. Hooray! Hooray! <laughs> right, your friend can bow down and buy you yeah. loads of beer. Martin, presumably you haven't tried our experiment in your car. 
Oh, I haven't. Lied, no. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it works with some foil. Would you like to guess what might happen if you were to do our experiment, apart from making a mess like Martin in Hunstanton did? But would you like to have a guess at what might happen if you? Certainly. What was the the question again? You take a you take a Pyrex object. It's got to be yeah. Pyrex, and you put it inside a bowl or something that can hold something, and then you add some vegetable oil. Do you know what happens? Where do you add it? To the Pyrex bowl? You just pour it, yeah, fill up the bowl. The fill up the bowl with the, the vegetable oil. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking it would... It would lift the bowl. No, not quite. I'm not going to give you another stab, and I'm not going to tell you why not, but uh, I am going to give you a chance to go at the quiz if you want. Right, thank you. All right then, Martin. A male green spoon worm is 200,000 times smaller than the female equivalent. Fact or fiction? That sounds like fiction, which probably means it's a fact. <laughs> <laughs> that was right, yes. Uh, green spoonworms live in the deepest sea, and the tiny male can be found living inside the female, uh, inside her reproductive bits, waiting to fertilise any passing eggs. Good start, Martin. Yeah. Uh, you, you, you can, you've got to get the next one right, basically, to keep in the race, OK? Yeah. The very centre of the Earth is liquid and has a temperature of around 500 degrees Celsius. Do you think that's science fact or science fiction? Uh, it's got to be fiction. I think it's a lot hotter than that. You're quite right. And the Earth's inner core is solid and measures up at a whopping 4,800 degrees Celsius, surrounded by an outer molten core of iron. You're still in the race, Martin. Next one, you ready? Yep. Some male fruit flies produce sperm 20 times longer than their own bodies. Do you think that's true or false? Um, that's got to be false. No, there's a particular species of fruit fly that has 60 millimetre long sperm and the male's <laughs> body is only 3 millimetres long. It takes the poor chaps nearly three weeks to make each one. Thank you, Martin. <laughs> thank, thank you for joining in. Bye. Pleasure to have you on the programme. The Naked Scientist, Dr Chris and Dr Kat, here with you through till seven. As The Naked Scientist, if you'd like to get a call through to us, we're talking stem cells, brain repair, we're talking pumps and heat engines. 08459252000 is the phone number, or chris at Naked Scientist is our email address. If you have any general science questions, as Martin did, we'll take those too. Let's have a quick chat to Wendy, who is in Canvey. Hello, Wendy. Hello. How are you? Fine, thank you. Have you got a mess in your kitchen? <laughs> My hands are a mess. Okay, what have you discovered? I've discovered, right, if I put the smaller one into the larger one... You better tell people you mean a Pyrex... Oh, the Pyrex dish. Yeah. I've got the large Pyrex dish with the smaller Pyrex dish. Yes. If I put the small one in with the oil... Yeah. ...it sucks it as if it's stuck like glue. It's hard to lift back out. Uh, well, that, that's an observation, but that's not what we're looking for, Wendy. It's not what you're looking Have for. another look at what you've done and see if anything has changed or if there's anything not quite right. Well, the oil lifts up a little bit, but not a lot. No, that's not. You, you'll be you'll really kick yourself when we give you the answer to this. Okay? <laughs> Do you want to quick go at the quiz? Oh no, I only know true or false. I don't know them. Well, you only have to guess true or false. Oh, you can, can get you much easier guess. than that. If you say true or false, <laughs> then I can answer you false or true. <laughs> okay, then I'll, we'll we'll do that then. All right? Yeah. Ants, ants, as in A N T S, ants yeah. make up not the one ant and deck on TV. Okay. Make up a tenth of the total weight of all the animals in the world. Is that science fact or science fiction? I'd say that's true. This Very is good. Absolutely staggering. There's 11,000 different oh. species of ants, and their total weight is roughly equal to the weight of all the humans on the planet. Gosh. Very good. Next question. The longest hiccuping attack went on for some 69 years. Do you think that's science fact or science fiction? True. 
from someone see. that didn't want to have a go, Wendy, you're a bit of a master at this. You're doing well, yes. Uh, as reported in 1989, an elderly American man apparently hiccuped at the rate of 20 to 25 per minute for 69 years. Last question. It's all riding on this, Wendy. The name dinosaur means giant lizard. Is that fact or fiction? Oh, gosh. Um, true. Ooh, oh, two, two out, out of three. Th- Second place. <laughs> it, it actually means terrible lizard from the Greek. It really? uh, was coined by Richard Owen in 1842. Well done, Wendy. That's still two out of three. That's a very good, that's a very valiant attempt. Thank you. Sorting out the sparks from the quarks. The Naked Scientists. For more information, get online at nakedscientists.com. Dr Chris and Dr Kat here with you until seven. If you're going to have a go at Dave and Derek's experiment, you've only got a couple of minutes left before we give you the answer. You could win yourself a Project Lab fantastic experiment which you wire up little kits and radios and things from Science Sleuth. Just give us a call 08459 25000, put a Pyrex jug or something in a big bowl and add some vegetable oil. Tell us what the key observation we're looking for is. Let's talk to Gary. He's in Huntington. Hello, Gary. Hello. What's your question? Um, how fast can... Brain cells repair the brain. I reckon that's over to Hussein and Adrian there. How fast can brain cells repair a brain? Well... I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's a very good question. It's an extremely good question. Some brain cells... See, the brain is a funny organ because it's actually made up of lots of different cell types, many of which are brain cells and some of them aren't. What do I mean by that? Well, for example, you've got blood vessels in the brain you've got specialised cells that mop up damage and infection Um, and if you damage your brain the non-brain cells in your brain actually repair themselves very quickly the problem is most of the really important brain cells those that carry the signals and tell you tell your limbs how to move and tell your mind how to think and your and and your and your body how to behave and so on those unfortunately repair very very slowly if at all And that's why we've been working on a special population of cells called stem cells. And these cells, we hope, have two very important properties. One of them is that you can grow them for a very, very long time in the dish, in the laboratory. And so you can take a few of these cells out and grow them up for as many as you need and use them for lots and lots of patients. And the second thing about them is that you can actually coax them into becoming brain cells and hopefully you can inject them into patients that have got brain damage and repair the damage. Of course, at the moment, this is all very, very early days and it's very experimental. But some of the results we've got at the moment uh, in these early experiments are very exciting. And we hope that in uh, many years' time, they will actually lead to a treatment for people with brain damage. There you have it, Gary. Yeah. Do you want to have a quick go at the quiz? Yeah, OK. OK. The biggest bat wingspan is six feet. Do you think that's true or false? True. Quite right. Um, yes, the six-foot wingspan belongs to flying foxes found in Asia. Uh, it's about the length of a surfboard. I, d- I don't know if they surf as well. Because that Probably would be Probably cool. do. Yeah. Bromidrosis is the scientific term for smelly armpits, Gary. Do you think that's fact or fiction? Fiction. <laughs> yes, you're quite right. Similar to halitosis, which is smelly breath, bromidrosis is, is what a technical term 
I do not have smelly feet. <laughs> smells like it to me. It, it's te- Bromidrosis is <laughs> smelly feet. And I know in the first series I confessed to having smelly feet, but I didn't mean it. Oh, they've cu- you've cleared that up I've now. I've cleared that up. I've gone. Got, I have got oh, smelly feet. What's though? that smell today, then? Um, I haven't washed. Smelly something else, I don't know. Yeah. Smelly armpits or I something. Okay, Gary, you're doing very well. Two out of three. In the month of May, children grown, born in Britain... Sorry, children in Britain grow faster than children in Australia. In the month of May, children in Britain grow faster than children in Australia. Is that fact or fiction? Fact. You're quite right. Yes, children grow faster in the spring, more generally, than in the winter. And so May is spring for us, and it's winter for Australia. So well done. Well done, Gary. Three out of three, you're in the hat alongside Molly. Well done. Good work. Nice work. Fancy listening to the naked scientists in your bed, (laughs) on your way to work, or even at work? Mm -hmm. Why not subscribe to our podcast? For more information, visit nakedscientist.com forward slash podcast. Megan is in Hartford. Hi, Megan. Hi. What's your question? My question is, why is the sun so hot? Why is the sun so hot? Because the sun is a giant nuclear reactor in the sky, and it's burning up hydrogen gas by mixing one hydrogen with another hydrogen to make another light gas called helium. And you'll have seen helium because have you bought one of those funky balloons that floats by itself? Um, yeah. Yeah, they're filled with helium. And that stuff is what happens when you mix two of these heat hydrogen atoms together. And, of course, when you mix the two together to make helium, you get a lot of heat energy. And so the sun, just on its surface, is at least 6,000 degrees centigrade. So it's really, really hot. In the middle, it's millions of degrees. But on the surface, it's 5,000 degrees. And that's what keeps us warm. All right? Uh-huh. We're going to have to move on, Megan, because we're almost out of time. Okay. Have you had a go at our experiment? Uh, what's that? Oh, uh, the one where you had to put the Pyrex dish in with some oil. Uh, no. Oh, never mind. You can have a go next week. Okay. All right, thanks for your call. We're going to have to move on quickly because we ha- reckon we have an answer to this. Barry's in Milton Keynes. Hello, Barry. Hello there. You've had a go at our experiment? No, I'm in the car at the moment. Okay, but you reckon you know what's going to happen? Well, I have a feeling that... Uh, the oil would make the Pyrex turn transparent rather than translucent. Wow, that's pretty impressive. What gives you that idea? I'm sure I read it somewhere a long time ago. Okie dokie. Um, so what would that mean? So what, what would that mean then? Would it make, the, would the make, make it like go a different colour? Or would it make mm. it vanish? It would turn it more like glass than, uh, than normal Pyrex. You're saying it would make it disappear, huh? In effect, yes. Shall we find out if you're right? Yes. OK, Barry, stay on the line. We'll get your details, OK? We're going to head back over to that kitchen, over to see what they're up to in the kitchen and find out if Barry has got the right answer. Let's find out. Dave and Derek, what's going on? Yes, indeed, Chris, we are still here in Combaton near Cambridge and we have our big bowl of oil ready and a Pyrex dish to put in it. Uh, so, Dave, why not instruct Sam and Alexander here as to, as to what to do next? So, Sam, just take the Pyrex dish and sink it into the oil. Sink it the edge in so it fills up with oil as well. Ah, it actually looks like there's only the top half of it there. So what's happened to the bottom half? I don't know. Has it disappeared? It's not there, is it? (laughs) Yeah, so we seem to have an invisible half of bowl here, like the half of the bowl that's actually under the oil. We put it in and it just goes. You can see that, yeah? Yeah, it's gone. So why do you think that's happened? Does, like, the oil reflect more than water would? You can't actually see the bottom half because your eye can't see through it. Right, well, yeah, OK, well, let's ask Dave. Dave, what's going on here? We've got this disappearing bowl in oil. Well, the first question to ask is, why can you see a transparent glass thing in the first place? 
Because it's transparent, so light will go straight through it. So any ideas where you can see normal glass thing? Is it because it's not completely transparent? Maybe because of the shape, that it's round? What do you say, Dave? Well, I'll do another little experiment to try and explain what's going on. What I've got here is a jug full of water and a straw. Now, if I put the straw into the water, and if you get down... So you're looking at it through the top of the water, but at an angle. Does the straw look straight? No, it bends. Looks like there's a bend at the surface of the water, doesn't it? But is the straw really bent? No. No. Yeah, so as soon as you put it inside the water, it's this straight straw, but it looks bent at the point where it goes into the water. And we'll just think about something quite strange, and hopefully it will explain what's going on here. Okay, if you imagine, like, a whole class of kids all holding hands in a big, long line, right? They're all running across a field really fast. Now, if the ones at the right-hand end suddenly hit some deep, thick mud and start to slow down, what's going to happen to the line? It's going to go at an angle. The right-hand end will drop back. The right-hand end will drop back, and it's like the line will sort of curve round a corner? Now, light does the same thing. If light hits the edge of some water or something where the light goes more slowly, it's called the refractive index is higher, it will bend round a corner and refract. So it slows the light down? Yeah, it slows the light down and makes it go round a corner. Now, when the light comes out of the water, it will bend back the other way, a bit like if you came out of the mud and the kids were trying to run as fast as they could, they'd sort of bend as well, wouldn't they? They'd bend the line. So, because the light bends, the end of the straw looks like it's in a different place to where it should be, so the straw looks bent. Now, this explains why you can see a transparent thing. Because if you look at the, through the small bowl, look up really close, what does the world look like through it? It looks sort of patchy, as if some bits are magnified and some are smaller. Looks all distorted, it, doesn't yeah. it? twisted. This is because when the light hits the edge of the glass, it slows down and it bends. So the image you see through the glass is all bent, so actually you see the rest of the world, but all bent and distorted. Now at home you can just see this by holding any kind of glass curved thing up to your eye, really. It seems to bend light, doesn't it? And that means the world just looks a bit strange behind the glass. Now, the special thing about Pyrex and oil is the light goes at exactly the same speed through both of them. So when the light goes from the oil to the Pyrex, it doesn't bend. It's like going from one piece of grass to another piece of grass with the kids running. So the light carries on in a straight line, so there's no way you can see the Pyrex, because it's transparent. So it disappears. Would this work with an ordinary glass? Unfortunately, no, because Pyrex is special, and the speed of light in Pyrex is slightly different from an ordinary glass. So if you put an ordinary glass in there, it would still bend the light, and you'd still be able to see the glass. OK, so there it is then. On, on its way to your eye, light is going through transparent things sometimes, and of course you can see these transparent things sometimes because they bend light. But, of course, the Pyrex and the oil bend light exactly the same amount, and so you can't see one in the other. Guys, so what did you make of the experiment? Alexander, firstly. Certainly. Very interesting. Yeah, and yourself, Sam? You couldn't believe it if you didn't see it. You've sort of got to see it to believe it. Anyway, that's all from us at the moment in Combaton near Cambridge, and so very many thanks to Sam and Alexander for helping us out, and also to Dave. And it's goodbye from us, so uh, goodbye and back to you, Chris. Thank you, Derek and Dave, who were in Alexander and Sam's kitchen in Combaton in Cambridge. Of course, we're visiting kitchens all around the region. If you'd like to volunteer your kitchen for us to come and do one of our funky science experiments there, then give us a call 08459 25 2000 and volunteer to come and participate in a bit of live naked science uh, from your kitchen. Next week, Sam and Ben will be in the Naked Scientist Laboratory, and in fact, they'll be meeting the world's snottiest nose. And the reason for that is because next week's show is all about super flus. Are we facing a, a looming pandemic of avian flu? 
Pan, Pat Troop, who runs the Health Protection Agency in, here in the UK, and Professor John Oxford, who's been involved in getting back together what's known as the 1918 Spanish flu, putting it back together genomically. They'll be here in this studio telling us all about what's happening in, the, in Asia and what we're going to do in the UK if we do get one of these horrible super flus coming our way. So if you have any questions about that, 08459 25 2000, call in and we'll try and get you involved in next week's programme. In the meantime, Barry, hello Barry. Hello there. In Milton Keynes, you got the right answer on our science experiment, even though you did it as a thought experiment rather like Einstein, rather than actually um, doing it. So, <laughs> rather than but ruining beca- your kitchen. Because you were in your car, we'll let you off. All right. All right? But anyway, you've won yourself a book, you've won yourself a copy of Simon Singh's Big Bang. Excellent. Thank you for calling in and taking part. Thank you very much. Okay. And out of the hat has come Molly, who is winning our electronic project kit for this week. So well done, Molly. That's on its way to you. Uh, thank you very much to... Tom Smith, to Adrian Peeney and to Hussein Mehmet for taking part in this evening's programme and a very big thank you to you at home for taking the time to call in and share our science with us this evening. We're back at the same time next week when we'll be finding out, as I say, all about superbugs and emerging infections. Sorting out the sparks from the quarks, the Naked Scientists. For more information, get online at nakedscientists.com.